Hi, everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. Yelena Goyne is a senior attorney with the Becker Law Firm and is a Florida board certified specialist in condominium and plan development law. She previously served as the executive director of the Community Association Leadership Lobby, or CALL, from 2007 to 2018, and was a registered lobbyist for 10 years. After graduating from Florida State Law School, Yelini served for five years as a senior attorney for the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation, Division of Land Sales, Condominiums, and Mobile Homes. In that capacity, she arbitrated condominium disputes, drafted administrative rules and declaratory statements, represented the division in circuit court, and provided legal opinions on behalf of the Bureau of Condominiums. I've been fortunate to work with her for many years, and she is one of the smartest association attorneys I know. Yelini, welcome to Take It to the Board. Thanks, Donna. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'm so excited to have you here. As you know, we just had a surprise ending to our 2022 legislative session in Florida. Many task forces were convened, including one by the Florida Bar, and all of these task forces recommended significant legislative changes to safeguard older multifamily buildings. Now, many of these changes involved engineering reports. They touched on reserve studies and reserve funding. What we got was nothing. The 2022 Florida legislative session ended without a single safety reform being passed. So I want to start out with the the hardest question in this entire episode, Yelini, which is how did that happen? That's a really good question. I think a lot of us were shocked on the legislature couldn't get together and come up with a solution. And you know, the task force that you mentioned was very comprehensive. They had lawyers that represent associations. They had lawyers who represent developers. They had folks come in with backgrounds in architecture and engineering, and they had building officials, and they had all these folks come in and provide presentations. And after months and months of meetings, they came up with a very good, comprehensive set of recommendations. And we thought that after all that, certainly something would would end up passing. And unfortunately, It didn't. And it came down to my understanding was that there was just a disagreement between the House and the Senate in Florida over the level of reserves that associations should have to have in their budgets. And one side wanted a certain level fully funded reserves. And the other one was the other side really wasn't willing to do that because they were concerned with the increased costs that the members of their association would have to absorb in order to have these fully funded reserves. And so Unfortunately, they couldn't reach any kind of a middle ground on that, and then nothing ended up passing. And sadly, I think that would ha- that's what happens with lots of legislation, not just community association legislation these days. If one side can't get everything that they want, then they are not willing to kind of meet in the middle to pass something that would be beneficial. It sounds like a legislative squabble, though. Yelini, I mean, we hear a lot and and the media has reported on this and I don't think they've often reported accurately that, you know, they're reacting to special interest groups, but I had my ear to the ground. I imagine you did as well. I didn't hear of a single organized special interest group that was urging legislators not to pass these reforms this session. Did you? No, I think everybody wanted something to pass and worked very hard to get the legislation into a draft that we all thought or that everyone thought 
would be well received and would be easy to pass. And yet here we are. Well, you've been, listen, from the intro, you've done this a long time. You're, you're very good at it. It was always my understanding that legislation is an incremental process. It's not an all or nothing, you know, one bite at the apple in one session. I always bring up the Florida Clean Indoor Air Act when they were trying to pass it in Florida. There were a lot of groups that said it wasn't going to pass. And over a series of sessions, they took little bites at the apple. And at the end of several years, Florida wound up with one of the strongest clean indoor air acts in in the country. Why have we not taken the same approach with community association legislation? Well, this might be one that we might see. It might take a session or two to get over the finish line because it is such an important issue. There are so many things that was in that bill that it may just take a while to get it passed. And we were hoping it was this year, but maybe next year, you never know, there could be special sessions, although I haven't heard of any special session on this. But yeah, it might take, you know, a little bit longer because it is such a huge, important issue. Well, Florida has a 60-day session. We've got people listening to this podcast from all over the country, all over the world. Florida is one of those states that only has a part-time legislature. I guess this question begs to be asked, is 60 days enough to get everything done? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think a lot of states have part-time legislatures. So it's not just Florida. Florida is such a large state, so you would think that, you know, we might need a little bit more time than maybe a smaller state. But yeah, that the other thing is in Florida, we have term limits. We have um, a lot of legislators that are new that may not be up to speed on all of these issues. And, and there's a lot of issues that the Florida legislature deals with every year, not just community associations. It's a lot to tackle in those two months. And perhaps if we could extend the session, that would be more likely to get things passed you also have the limits on the number of bills that legislators can can file because of that, because there's only so much time. And if every legislator was given an unlimited number of bills that they could file, there'd be no way that they could get through them all in 60 days. Is it easy to find legislators who are willing to sponsor community association legislation? I remember more than a decade ago, we had legislators, they kind of made it their platform. And those were legislators who tended to have a lot of associations in their districts. But today, I know fewer and fewer of them. Is it is it a tough sell to get a legislator to agree to run with a community association bill? Like you said, it depends on where they're from. And if they have a background in community associations or if they've ever had an issue with their community association, sometimes that is a reason for people to get interested in filing these bills. So it really, it can be difficult because they do have a limit on the number of bills that they can file. So they have to kind of pick and choose the issues that are important to them. And some of them really find this to be important to them. And then some really don't. So you have to find the ones that are interested, and then you have to be able to convince them to file this as part of their six bills. Now over in the Senate, they don't have that limit that we talked about, but you have to have the bill in both the House and the Senate. So finding a House sponsor, I think, is a little harder because of that limit on the number that they can file. You know, I forgot to ask you when we started if you would swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. (laughs) You got it. This will be anonymous, but have you ever dealt with the sponsor of a bill that did and he or she did not know what was in their bill. No names, but did not have a great grasp because I will tell you my own story. I have. Uh-huh. 
legislators are not going to be subject matter experts on every bill that crosses their desk. But what shocked me right. when when I was actually lobbying was that sometimes the people, who, the legislators who were sponsoring bills, they knew what they wanted to accomplish. I'm not saying that in their bills, but they didn't have a real tight grasp on what the actual bill said once they came out of bill drafting. Right, which is why it's very helpful to have folks like call and the other groups, that members of the Florida Bar that lobby on these issues, because it is very technical a lot of times. And you might think you know what your bill says, but in practice, it may do something different. And, you know, one word here or there can change the meaning of it. So, you know, having that expertise, if the legislator doesn't have it, then hopefully that there are people who practice in this area of law that can educate them and help them with the bill drafting. And that's a lot of what we would do in Tallahassee. We would take a bill. If, if it was a bill that we did not help draft, we would read the bill. We would talk to the legislator or his aide. We would go to bill drafting and we would kind of help with the wording of it to get it to where it was something that was made sense could be easily interpreted by condo associations and their lawyers, and that it could be implemented. And so sometimes you're right, sometimes the actual intent is not always what is on the word of the bill. And so that's part of what we would do is we would try to get it to where the legislator who wants to pass something can get it in a form where it's well understood and he can pass it because he obviously wants to pass his bills. He's not going to file a bill if he doesn't want to try to get it passed at least. So that's kind of what lobbyists do. That's one of the things, you know, people sometimes have a negative view of lobbyists, but you know, a lot of it is just trying to help these bills through the process and help the legislators get their bill passed so that it's going to benefit as many people as possible. So that's a perfect segue into the old saying that you don't want to see how the sausage is being made or how laws are being made. You mentioned, Yelini, um, bill drafting. Can you give us a little insight into that? So legislator has an initial draft. It goes into, let's say, Senate bill drafting. Why does it sometimes come out in vastly different form than the way it went in. And we often see unintended consequences because of the poorly chosen word here and there. Well, again, I think this is such a technical area of the law that sometimes the people who are working in bill drafting don't know what a common element is. And they don't know the difference between a common element and association property. And they might use those terms interchangeably, let's say. The good thing is that there is a process. And so even when it comes out of bill drafting, there's still times to tweak it. Even when it gets filed, there's the committee process. And through that committee process, there can be amendments that get filed. So we look at the bills when they come out, we look at amendments that get filed, and we will sometimes help with the drafting of those amendments to clarify it and kind of fix some of those technical issues that sometimes arise when it comes out of bill drafting. So as a bill is winding its way through the committee process, explain the difference between a friendly, I mean, it's you can tell from the face of it, friendly amendment versus a, a hostile amendment, but a legislator, do they have to accept a hostile amendment or amendment they perceive to be contrary to the spirit or intent of their bill? Do they have to accept that amendment onto the bill? I think the legislature tries to be congenial and 
a lot of times a legislator will file what we call like a hostile amendment just to make a point. But then you'll see a lot of times it'll be withdrawn if they don't think that the amendment is going to have the votes in the committee that they need to get the amendment passed. And if a sponsor says, I don't want this amendment, I think most other legislators will kind of respect that. That's kind of how I've seen it kind of play out a lot of times up in Tallahassee. Of course, that doesn't always happen. But for the most part, I think they try to not put a hostile amendment on a bill if the sponsor doesn't want it. And they try to work with the sponsor ahead of time to kind of work together to see if they can agree to some kind of additional language. So that's usually how it happens. It's very rare for a bill to fail in committee. It happens. But once it's in the committee process and and the chair of the committee, a lot of times gets to decide what bills is going to be heard in the committee. So once the bill gets heard in the committee, unless it's just super, super controversial, usually does not fail. It either they'll either run out of time and the bill won't get heard in the committee or it'll pass narrowly and then it might not pass in the next committee. So so that's usually how it works. Who decides how many committees of reference there are for a bill? Usually comes from the speaker's office or the Senate president's office. They initially decide what committees the bills will be assigned to, and then it has to kind of work through those committees. And there's usually three committees. If it's a bill that the leadership wants, you know, it might get less committees um, to make sure that it it makes it through the process. But And if they want to to bottle something up, what, five committees? Can they send it to a bunch of committees to do that? They can. They can put it through a lot of subcommittees before it gets the committee. The leadership and the chair kind of have a lot of say over what bills are going to get heard in committee. And so if you see a bill and it's week three of the legislative session and it hasn't been heard in any committees yet, you kind of know that's not going anywhere. Does the chair alone, Yelini, decide, you know, because they can bottle up a bill, like you said, by not bringing it up for consideration. That's one way to kill a bill. If it's going to an assigned committee and the chair of the committee says, we're not going to hear this bill, then the bill goes nowhere. But does the chair alone make that decision or does the committee have to vote on the bills they want to hear? My experience is it's, you know, a lot of times it's the chair, but of course the committee members within that committee can talk to the chair and sometimes work things out and and get the bill put on on the calendar. But I think the chair of the committee kind of has a lot of say over what bills get heard in his committee. That's why he's the chair, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be the chair. Um, I imagine there's a lot of uh, uh, bartering going on between committees. If you hear my bill, I'll hear your bill. Is that kind of how, is that kind of how it works? I guess that's how the sausage is made, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they all listen to that. They all want to go back to their districts after session ends and tout their successes, right? These were my bills and these are the bills I got passed. So like you said earlier, they're really, when they're using their precious limited bill slots, they they are doing it for bills, for new laws that they think that they have a fair chance in passing. Is that fair assessment? Yeah. And then, yeah, of course. And then sometimes they may file a bill that they may no, it's not going to go anywhere, but they, they need to do it for, I guess, their own political reasons. So a lot of our listeners have probably never visited a state capitol while their legislature is in session. They probably, like me, went to the state capitol in the state I grew up, Illinois, for a middle school trip. <laughs> but other than that, they may not have been back. So walk us through it, because you were in Tallahassee for years, Yolini, during session. Mm-hmm. Walk us through a typical day in the life of a lobbyist. Like how many 
what would your day look like? How many legislators would you meet with? How many legislative assistants? Things like that. Yeah, you spend a lot of time on your feet walking. And if you've ever been to the Capitol in Tallahassee, everybody says, you know, wear comfortable shoes because you're nobody walking gave, one. Nobody and- gave me that memo the first time I went. And I <laughs> I'm was, sure you're... Oh, I was crippled. By the end of the day, my feet were yeah. killing me. But I bet your shoes were fabulous. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I had a strong exactly. shoe game, but my, my feet suffered. So... During session, the bills get calendared usually a couple of days before the committee meeting that it's going to be on the calendar for. So you kind of know kind of what your day is going to look like. If you're going to be going to any committee meetings, if any of your bills are going to be heard in committee, you kind of put that in your in your day. And then leading up to that day, you're meeting with as many legislators as you can, especially if you've got a bill that's in that committee. You want to try to meet with the as many legislators that are on that committee as possible to kind of let them know about the bill and you know whether you have any concerns with it and, and that sort of thing. So if a lobbyist has a client in town, if you have an elected official, if you represent a local government, let's say, because I did a little a little of that work as well for our Becker lobbying government practice group. If you have a local government official in town, you may be taking them around to meet with their legislators. Um, so it's a lot of walking and talking and also talking to other lobbyists that are also involved in the same area of law, which is community associations. You may have a group that is representing the managers, for instance. They have their own lobbying group. You may have insurance lobbyists who may be interested in your bill because it impacts the insurance that condominium associations have to have to have. You may have the bankers. They have lobbyists and how the bills that impact the collection and foreclosure process for condominium associations and how that impacts the mortgage foreclosures So the banker lobbyists are are interested in that. So you're always talking to other lobbyists as well to kind of try to figure out, hey, is there a group that's going to be opposed to this bill that I am in favor of? Or is there, I've got this bill that I have some concerns with. Who are the groups that are in favor of this bill? Who do I need to talk to to see if we can work out something on this bill so that we can both get to where we can support it. So there's a lot of that involved too. Yelena, you talked a little bit about your role as a lobbyist in terms of the technical drafting. And and I imagine that's a really crucial part of, of your job as a lobbyist when dealing with these proposed bills. But is there anything else in terms of, I think, I know there's this Hollywood scenario where you think of the lobbyist and they're giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down to a legislator on how to vote. How realistic is that image? of how expansive a role a lobbyist may play in terms of the legislation that's ultimately passed. I didn't really see a lot of that. I think the lobbyists do play an important role because with so many legislators who are new, with those that don't have a background in this type of law, and as as an education process, trying to educate the legislators about community associations, boards, all the issues that they have to deal with, So I looked at it more as a a way to educate the legislators and help them pass good bills. So as far as the backroom deals, maybe on other types of issues that are more high stakes, more high stakes economically, like, like, like like gaming. Well, it's high stakes, but not in terms of economics when we're talking about like the gaming industry in Florida when that was right. But as far as, you know, community association legislation, I think that 
the yay or the nay or standing in the back and having legislators, you know, legislators look to see how they should vote, kind of know before they go into their committee meeting, how they're going to vote. And then a lot of it also is just which bills are, are going to move. And, and that sometimes is decided by somebody higher up than that particular legislator. Like the Senate president or Speaker of the House. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's you touched on something important about education, and I think that's crucial. I remember when I would lobby in Tallahassee and I would, if I would testify in front of a committee, one of the first questions I like to ask was how many of the members of the committee have lived in either a homeowners association or a condominium or a cooperative. Very few hands went up. And then how many served on the board? Rarely would there even be a single hand raised when I'd ask that question. So I do think there has been traditionally a disconnect in Tallahassee for some legislators in terms of what it means to live in a community association, what it means to elect a board, what it is to serve on that board and make these decisions. Did you find that to be the case as well, where sometimes you were educating legislators who really had never even lived in a community association? Yeah, of course. And I think it's getting more and more nowadays. All new communities pretty much have an HOA. Unless you're dealing with a very rural area, I think most legislators do have either their mother or their family member or they themselves live in a community association. And some of it too is trying to deal with some of the biases that people come in with respect to their to HOAs. They, you know, may have a negative view of HOAs and then our job, part of our job is to kind of kind of dissuade them of those negative connotations that they may have because of a particular news story or just because one HOA may have taken a very strong position on an issue that say was a a flag or a pet in a community, for instance, and there's a big news story. And so because of that, they kind of get this negative connotation and they think that all HOAs are bad and all community, all, you know, board members have a, have a power trip and, you know, they, they think, but that's the norm when it's really not. So you have to kind of educate them yeah, on those issues. You're reminding me of a couple different things. I remember with the homeowners associations and the architectural guidelines, a former state representative had moved into his own HOA and proceeded to erect like a seven foot high fence. And when the HOA said, hey, you can't do that, that's against our guidelines, he said, well, nowhere in there did it say that I couldn't put up. A, it didn't reference a height for the fence. And I won't name the rap, but you you know what I'm referring to in 720, right. where he changed the law, the old toe ball, there ought to be a law, right? Changed the law to say that it, in a homeowners association, it's no longer you know good enough to simply say that these decisions rest in the sole aesthetic discretion of the board. And that's how a lot of these laws pertaining to community associations come about. Either it's because of a uh, negative experience that a Florida legislator may have had with his or her community, or because there's a pretty vocal um, constituent base in their district talking to them about association issues like that. Yes. There was one law that got added to an HOA bill a few years ago, and it had to do with making sure that all HOA meetings were held in a place that was accessible to handicapped persons. That's what the bill originally said. And it was because a legislator had a constituent who had that issue with their particular HOA. And so it ended up passing. And I think what we ended up doing is we helped revise that bill language to say, if 
own association gets a request from an owner saying that they need to have an accessible location for the meeting, then they would have to do it. But that's one of those examples of it's a good idea, but it might have unintended consequences because you may have a small association that has their meetings in somebody's house or in their clubhouse that's not accessible. And now they're going to have to go and maybe pay for to have their meetings at like a library or, or another location off property. And, you know, why make every association do that if they don't have an owner that needs that accommodation? So that's just an example of it came to the legislator through a constituent. We looked at it. We said, yeah, that's good, but let's make it a little better. Let's make it more practical. And so that doesn't have unintended consequences for all associations throughout the entire state. And now the law is in effect. And I think it works really well. Well, that's such a that's such an important point because you talked about education. When people think about, let's say, a condominium association, a lot of times a legislator is thinking about a multifamily building, a high rise with hundreds of residents. The reports show that 50% of associations in Florida are small. Their 50 units are smaller. Some of them, my small, one of my smallest communities is five units. So to your point, that's where the education comes in because for smaller communities, some of these laws can have a disproportionate proportionately negative impact. Yeah, for example, one of the issues that people talk about a lot is term limits. So it's say, oh, we should have term limit for HOA and condo associations. Well, that's great in a community that has robust elections every year and you have a lot of people want to run for the board, but you know, you may have a small community that is desperate to get people to run. And if you impose term limits, if all the legislation said was can't serve more than six years, let's say, and there's no exceptions, then what is that a small association going to do if they can't get people to run? And so they need a way to have to have an exception for those term limits if you can't get people to run. And again, that was another example of the initial language said, we want term limits. And then we had to explain, well, you can't do that statewide. You can't apply that to all of every association throughout the state because some associations are desperate for people and you can't impose term limits or you'd have no one on the board. You know, sometimes I think these proposals, some of these proposals are designed to make our phones ring as lawyers, as community association lawyers. For instance, the electric car charging law we saw several years ago where the law was changed to say that owners in condominiums, if they want to install a personal electric vehicle charging station in their limited common element parking space, they're entitled to do so. Well, as you know, a lot of these older communities, they don't really have the infrastructure set up for that. I know we reached out to the bill sponsor and said, hey, why don't you think about handling EV charging stations the way you handle satellite dishes, which is people can install individual dishes. But if the community decides to install a community dish, then you can deny the personal dishes. That bill sponsor was not interested in that. So that has become the law. And as you know, we're still dealing with that now, particularly as electric vehicles become more popular. We're really having to look at this law now and see how it's going to play out. And then, of course, last year, we had the natural gas station that somebody can install. Hopefully you won't have somebody install a natural gas station right next door to the electric vehicle charging station. But these are the type of laws that, you know, I wonder sometimes, was it a problem that you needed natural gas station to be installed in individual parking spaces in a condominium? What do you 
Yeah. Are, are some of these solutions in, in, in search of problems? Certainly the electric vehicle, yes, because people are, that's where we're headed. People are purchasing more. Right. Of those. Yeah, I don't know. I've never heard of a natural gas powered vehicle, but maybe they're coming. And sometimes we don't know. Maybe the legislators who are proposing some of these bills have, have ties to those particular industries. There's nothing that prevents that, correct? No, not that I know of. Yeah. So how responsive are legislators to emails and calls from constituents, whether it's in support of or opposed to a particular bill? Do they, are they really responsive to this? So I think if they get inundated with emails and phone calls, of course, it's going to perk their ears up and, and make them pay attention. But I've always felt like they listen more if it's their particular constituent. So you know, just an email from a random person in the state of Florida may not sway them as much as somebody who is in their district, somebody they have a personal relationship with, obviously somebody that they know. And that's why I think groups like Call and other groups like that, that give a voice to all of these owners and board members in the state can kind of filter all of these issues down and have meaningful discussion with the legislature if they're able to. Sometimes a phone call to the legislative aide, I think, is even more impactful than mass emails to the legislators inbox. But it is important, you know, if they've got enough of these emails, um, they will pay attention. But there are other ways to influence the process also. It seems to make sense also for people to get to know their legislators when they're not in session. So over the summer months, if you don't know, reach out. I I would imagine they're always open to visits to their district offices, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. You got to kind of start early. Don't wait in the middle of the 60-day session when there's too many other things that are keeping them busy. Um, So anytime you have an opportunity to even invite them to your community. I mean, some of these large, larger communities with clubhouses, these legislators would, I think a lot of times would love to come. And remember in Florida, the representatives have to run every two years. So it's almost like they're always campaigning. So they could come and be happy to talk to your community. What's the, so it's two years for the representatives in Florida, four years for the senators? I think it's six years for senators. Well, I have to tell you, you know, if you're constantly campaigning, that's part of the problem. You know, we're hoping you're going up there to do some work. But if you're constantly trying to keep get reelected, it seems to be an impediment to getting the the state's work done. But who knows? Who knows if they'll ever ever change that? So, Yelini, I wanted to ask you, during your tenure as executive director of CALL, which, again, is the Community Association Leadership Lobby, which Becker created years ago, because there are so many, there are thousands, I think 60 some thousand associations throughout the state of Florida. We're one of the most populous states in terms of community association residents. What was some of the legislation that call supported? Gosh, we always like to think of ways to make life easier for community associations. And, you know, you wouldn't think that a bill that says you can send a copy of your proxy via email to the association was necessary, but there was nothing that said that. And so that has helped with increased participation because if an association can receive a proxy that scanned an email to the manager, it's much easier than having to rely on the mail system. Same with electronic voting. That was a really big change that we helped with that legislation and helped to get it to the point that 
it could pass and was workable and fair and secure and much more, I think, secure than sending a paper ballot through the U.S. mail and quicker too. Especially now we've been hearing mail taking so long. That's been helpful to associations to get their quorum and get things passed. I helped work on legislation on hurricane protection, get hurricane protection installed um, without a vote of the owners. If if it's part of the association's maintenance responsibility that helps them put in new windows, let's say, and it not be considered a material alteration. And then it, I was in Fort Myers during Hurricane Charlie. And so we saw the devastation that that caused and how difficult it was for association to manage that. And so we helped with the drafting and the passage of the emergency power statute that will go into effect when there's a state of emergency. So kind of all of those things. But I mean, every year there was a huge bill. I remember during the recession, the bills that call weighed in on in terms of the crushing amount of delinquencies in some of the communities, particularly in South Florida, particularly in Miami-Dade, where some of them during the recession in 2007, 2008 had 80% delinquencies and associations were saying, how are we going to collect assessments? How are we going to fund essential services? And there were bills that were proposed that were passed. Some of them allowed a suspension of use rights and other things, because I remember people were complaining that we have people not paying, but they're still at the pool. They're still using the tennis courts and they're not paying to fund the maintenance and repair of those items. And then you had units that were vacant, that people just walked away from these units because they couldn't pay their mortgage anymore. They couldn't pay their assessments and they would just leave these units and they were abandoned. And so there was legislation to deal with abandoned units and letting associate basically become the receiver for those units so that they could then rent them out and provide some income back to association for the repairs of those units so that then they could be sold once somebody got title to it, if the association were to get title to it, for instance. And like you said, those are those are bills that helped address common everyday problems. We always think we solve one problem and then something else pops up. It's never going to end, but this is why staying on top of the legislation, playing a role in it, being vigilant about it is so important to people living in shared ownership communities because they're governed not only by their governing documents, but by the statutes. Unlike somebody who lives in their own single family home, yes, they have to comply with the local ordinances, but they are not operating within a somewhat rigid statute framework. So it is important to know what's going on, particularly because you're more highly governed than your neighbor down the street who's not inside a community association. So Yelena, during that same time period that you were the executive director of CALL, what were some of the bills that CALL opposed? You know, we really try to do our best not to come out right out of the bat and say, we are opposed to this bill. A lot of the times the bills, we have concerns with either the drafting or are concerned that it might have some unintended consequences. And so we really would try to do our best to work with the legislator to amend the bill, tweak it if necessary, but to get it to the point where we could support it. But there sometimes would come a time where we just were not able to get to that point and we had to kind of oppose a particular bill. And one that I can think of was there was a bill, we called it the design professional bill, but it was basically intended to limit the liability of design professionals, which would be like architects, engineers, people that design buildings or that that the association might hire to draft specifications for construction projects, let's say. And we were had a lot of concerns because associations hire these folks all the time. And if they could 
limit their liability, that would really put the association in a bad spot if you know they ended up getting damaged as a result of that. So we worked hard to get that bill to finally had to oppose that bill because there was just no changes that we could agree to. And I believe that one year it ended up passing, but then the governor vetoed it. And so that was, that's one bill that we opposed. And then I remember there was another bill where associations, when they collect past due assessments, the statute says that the association can collect interest, late fees, cost, and attorney's fees. And there was a bill that would have prohibited associations from recovering its attorney's fees. The association would sometimes have to spend as much money in attorney's fees to collect, you know, quite a bit of attorney's fees to collect their assessments. And if an association were not able to collect those attorney's fees, there's no way that it would be beneficial for an association. They would end up spending a lot of money just to collect their past due assessments. So they'd never be made whole in that case. Right, exactly. What would be the rationale for that? I mean, that, that leads me to another question because, well, let me take a step back. Were you as surprised as I was this session that when the focus, at least part of the focus was on safe buildings, that the legislature that a, that a legislator would even decide to sponsor a bill that would shorten the statute of repose, which is currently 10 years in Florida. And for our listeners, that's a statute of limitations for latent defect, latent construction defects. So at the same time, they're looking and saying that they're going to be passing safety reforms to make buildings safer. Well, buildings, safe buildings start with the people who build them, right? And the people who work on them. So why on the one hand, would you be looking to make buildings safer while on the other hand, you're proposing legislation to shorten the time period for these buildings to see, to discover and pursue latent construction defects? Yeah, that's a good question. That is a bill that we see all the time where you were talking about shortening the statute of repose. Seems like Every other year, we see an attempt to shorten the statute of repose. And I think right now it's 10 years. And i that's another bill, you say, bills that we've opposed. There was an attempt to shorten it to seven years. And the problem with that is that condominium associations, for instance, they a lot of times they don't get turned over until after seven years or right at the seven-year period. And so there's no way for an association to file a lawsuit against the developer when the developer is the one that is in control of the association for seven years. So the association would get turned over at year seven and then, oops, we would have, we had no no more time to file your step, your construction defect claim. You know, somebody would think of that, right? Or maybe they did it, they, they knew and they were doing it on purpose, but that's one of the things we had to explain to the legislators, like, you can't do this. You're, you would absolutely be prohibiting a condominium association from filing a construction defect claim. Somebody needs to, the right hand needs to know what the left hand's doing up there. I mean, even getting back to your point about the bill you opposed where associations who were pursuing delinquent accounts couldn't collect attorney's fees, all of the mandates that we will probably see next session, this was an election year and nothing passed, as you said at the outset, but next year, the reserve funding mandate, the reserve study requirement, the periodic engineering inspections, we expect and anticipate those will pass. Those are all going to cost money. And then, of course, all the repairs that are going to be outlined in these reports are going to have to be done. So why, again, on the one hand, are we passing necessary mandates? There's no doubt about it. But on the other hand, making it more difficult. And we see these bills every year where there seems to be a disconnect with some legislators that associations have to have an ability to actually 
fund these things. And the way to do it is to be able to collect delinquent assessments expeditiously, not hastily, not brutally, but expeditiously to get the money in. I I don't know. Maybe we need a, we do board certification classes for our directors. Maybe there needs to be some sort of a broad scale class on this for our legislators so they understand that this has to be a full circle approach. Yeah. And I think one of the recommendations from that task force was to remove you know how many older documents will say in order to pass a special assessment or to borrow money, you need a vote of the members. And I think one of the recommendations from the task force was to remove that member vote requirement if the assessment or the borrowing is because of necessary maintenance, repair, and replacement. So I think that would be an important thing for the legislature to pass in addition to these reforms for inspections and things like that, because if the associations are limited or there's some constraints in their documents about how much they can spend or how much they can borrow or what type of vote you need to get, which sometimes is like 75%, which is very high threshold for some communities to be able to get 75% of the members of the total number of members in your community to vote on something. And even if they, even if the members think it might be a good idea, there's just sometimes there's apathy. Sometimes they just don't understand and they just won't vote. And if you need 75% of all of the members, that's a really high threshold. So they need to take that into account too, when imposing mandates to see if there's something in the documents that might preclude the association from taking that action. You know, it's, it's funny how perspectives shift. Because for years, some of our Florida legislators have been saying we need to make it easier for folks in these communities to recall their boards, right? With the mindset that these are bad boards, we've got to get them out. And sometimes that's correct. But guess what's happening now? Sometimes the members are threatening to recall boards because they're doing the right thing, because they want to fund reserves and they want to undertake regular periodic maintenance. So it's really a double-edged sword. On the one hand, again, you fix one thing. Thing and now you've broken something else. And I think about that now because I remember all of the dialogue on we have to make it easier to recall boards, but the result may now be contrary to what they're trying to accomplish with having boards that understand they have a fiscal responsibility to fund reserves, undertake periodic maintenance and repairs. Yeah, that's a good point. With recalling a board and then also with like what I was talking about term limit, you have to change your boards every year. You may not have the people with the knowledge that have gone through this before and you might have a learning curve with the new board members, which is, it's not a bad thing, but you know, in some communities, you might want to have some board members who've gone through these big projects before, who know all of the intricacies of funding reserves and entering into contracts and dealing with all of the issues that come with those big reconstruction projects. You're you're so right. A lot of times people get on the board, there's no onboarding process. Nobody tells them what to expect. And if it's entirely new board, it's almost like an incoming freshman class every year or two. Right. You're right. right. I think there's some value to to having some historical knowledge. Well, you've been great with your time. I want to ask one final question before I release you from the podcast, which is if you were drafting a wish list for community association legislation, it doesn't just have to be in Florida. Just, you know, you know, communities are, are, are basically the same. They have more in common wherever they're located throughout the country than people living in homes that aren't within a mandatory community association. So if you were drafting a wish list for community association legislation, what would be on it? 
Well, I think I mentioned it earlier, which is relieving associations from the burdens of these owner votes for borrowing money and especially assessing the community if it involves necessary maintenance. And it kind of goes back to those things which are necessary. I'm not talking about assessing your members for a new pool heater or something like that, but I'm just talking about necessary maintenance, things that need to get, because you know you always hear the, the story of people don't buy green bananas because they might not be around for for that banana to ripen. And so sometimes you're dealing with associations that may not want to vote in favor of something because they might not be around to benefit from it. So they might be thinking that, so they don't vote in favor of it. And so you kind of need to remove those impediments so that associations can take the necessary repairs that are needed, even to borrow money, because that's just an easy, easier way now, especially for associations to fund these projects. And some of these older documents have these burdensome requirements for owner votes. And then the other thing I would say is the emergency power statute says that if you're in a state of emergency, associations can have remote meetings. That's not clear that that applies even when we're not in a state of emergency. And I think now with the two years of the pandemic, more and more associations are comfortable with remote meetings and remote voting. And so if they can take advantage of that and allowing associations to take advantage of all that new technology, even when we're not in a state of emergency, I think that that would help with increased participation by owners and getting people more involved. So I think that's a great point. Yeah. two things. Well, my wish list item for community association legislation, you need is um, a little self-serving, but it would be that boards have to get legal review for certain contracts. For instance, the pernicious automatic renewal clauses that associations get themselves cooked into contracts, certain types of contracts, and they can't get out for years and years. That has created so much havoc in so many communities. So that I would like to see, or maybe just flat out ban automatic renewal clauses in in community association contracts. But that would be my wish list yeah, item. There you go. That would be good. I've seen that a lot too. And then they you know they, yeah. or they automatic renewal and then they miss the deadline because you have to get it like you know well that's because the window of opportunity yeah the window of opportunity yeah. is like you know two inches wide and that's it and then right. they miss it and that's that's by, kind of the intent yeah and it has to be by certified mail or very specific notice requirements that associations sometimes mess up. So for all our vendors listening, listen, if you do good work, the association will renew with you. You don't have to trick them in with these automatic renewal clauses and other things that make it that make it difficult to get out. So Yelini, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and thank we'll see you. what happens next year in terms of community association legislation. Yeah. Thanks so much, Donna. It was fun. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit TakeItToTheBoard.com for more ways to connect. <laughs>